Good morning, Four Corners Church. What a blessing it is to be led by the band and singing praises to God. You know, we are careful to say, maybe a bit too precise, but to say it's not just the singing that is worship. All that we are doing this morning is worship. The reading of Scripture, the preaching, the confessing of our faith, the Lord's Supper, all of it is worship. But the worship singing that we uh, get to be a part of every time we gather. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that, and we just give God thanks for those who uh, put that work in and lead us. And we were reminded of that at the Christmas Eve service, uh, what a blessing it was to gather there. And, but it's, it's, it's funny, we, we come off of a service like that, a, a special service, back to the run-of-the-mill uh, Sunday Week in, week out, and here we are once again, this very special Lord's Day, reminded that every time we gather, whether it's a special service or not, every time we gather is a privilege and something to give God thanks for. I hope that you and your families had a great Christmas and uh, that you delighted in Christ in your own heart and before your kids and with your kids, and if you don't have kids, that Christ was at the center of whatever it is that you did. We all have different traditions. Uh, we all approach uh, some of the, uh, the, the parts of cultural Christmas differently. And it's such a joy. I was talking with someone about this recently. It's a joy to be in a church where there is Christian freedom on these sorts of things. Where uh, Christians are, are, are living with, the, with their own conscience before the Lord as they think about how to celebrate Christmas wisely and in a way that centers it on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that it was a blessing for your family. If you would, go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. That is our passage for today. Romans 5. 12 to 14. We have continued our series in Romans through Advent, which is not typical. Uh, we, we typically go some, to a, a, an explicit Christmas passage, but uh, given the content of what we've covered in Romans, it seemed fitting to do that. And I hope that you have discovered fresh content for celebration this Christmas. As we have seen all of the salvific language in Romans that you have, uh, that you've come to see uh, more specifically what it is that Christ came to do, what it is that he accomplished, and what it is that we are celebrating at a time like Christmas. That what we've looked at in Romans has had the effect of giving you fresh fodder for adoration this Christmas as you have worshiped our king. As we come to the end of Romans 5 this morning, we find ourselves once again back in Genesis. You might be thinking, not back in Genesis. We were there for a long time, and we were two years. But here we are in Romans, also in Genesis. Hence the very long, thank you Stan, uh, the very long passage that Stan read to us earlier. In Romans 4, Paul took us back to Genesis to consider Abraham. And now in chapter 5, he takes us all the way back to Adam. Abraham is used by Paul in chapter 4 
to illustrate justification by faith. So Paul wants to take the doctrine that he has explained in Genesis, uh, in Romans, I'm getting crossed up here, in Romans chapter 3, and he wants to illustrate that in Romans 4. And that's why he goes to Abraham. He uses him as the typical example or illustration of justification by faith alone. We talked about, although that word alone is not there, it is clearly implied as Paul explains what is going on in Genesis 15 with Abraham. So Abraham helps us understand that doctrine. And here, Adam helps us understand both the human condition and how Jesus Christ has overcome it. That's what we're looking at as we move to Adam, as the spotlight goes to Adam, and Paul begins to make this argument centered on Adam and Christ in chapter 5. Paul's goal in chapter 5, and really throughout chapters 5 to 8, as you get an indication of over on this poster, which is the end of this section, this larger section runs from the beginning of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 8. And throughout this section, Paul has one big objective. One big goal, and it is to increase Christian assurance. Paul's desire in Romans 5 all the way through the end of chapter 8 is to bring joyful confidence in the Lord to God's people. That there would be rejoicing and boasting in Christ. That there would be assurance and security and confidence through this Christ. So we get a little bit of a, a, an indication of this if we look at the very last verse of the first section of chapter 5 and the last verse of the second major section of chapter 5. So the first section of chapter 5 runs from verses 1 to 11. So look at the last words there. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see that? That's the language of assurance. It's the language of exultation. It's the language of joyful confidence in what we have through Christ. And then the second major chunk of chapter 5 runs from verse 12 all the way to verse 21. And look at how he ends that section in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's my point? My point is that as you move into and through chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is calling all of us who are believers to rest with surety in Christ. To no longer be tossed to and fro in our assurance, but to stand secure and firm as those who have been justified and reconciled through Christ to God. And in this state of security and confidence, we'll see as we go into chapter 6 that we live in the power of Christ as we fight sin and as we live out the Christian life. The title for the sermon this morning, is the first Adam. And you'll see that up here on the screen, the first Adam. Christmas is by nature a time of Christological reflection. 
It's fascinating to me how deeply theological Christmas is. I mean, you just can't live on the surface during Christmas. If you're listening at all to the words of the classic Christmas songs, if you're listening at all to the things being read, Christmas is deeply theological. And it is a time specifically of Christological reflection. Who is Christ? And what did he accomplish? These are the very explicit themes of the songs and passages that we hear read and sung during Christmas. Prophecies of Christ, titles of Christ. Just as Walt prayed last Sunday, we see all of this material throughout the Bible about the significance of this God-man. Jesus Christ, the promised one from the Old Testament, moving into the New Testament as we see him born. And one of the titles, one of these Christological titles that theologians have given Christ, and this is based primarily on the text before us this morning on Romans 5, one of those titles is the second Adam. So some of you may have heard this before, and some of you haven't. The second Adam. Christ is the second Adam. And if you were listening at the very beginning of the service during the call to worship, we read 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, and it says this, For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That set of verses really is one of the best parallels to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're looking at Romans 5. Verses 12 to 14, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of 12 to 21 because you really need to see where Paul is headed in order to understand the three verses before us this morning. This is the Word of God. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Verse 12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we're going to have to stop there for this morning, but I'm going to continue reading uh, for now. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise God for that sentence. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. I hope now you can see why it might be a bit unwise to take on all of that passage this morning. How rich. And it, it, it amazes me how every time it seems that uh, I come to a new text each week. I once heard Kent Hughes preach in, in a church uh, that I was we were, we were members of in Edinburgh, Kent Hughes. Uh, I've, I've quoted him a number of times. He's written a number of commentaries. And I, I once heard him comment on of decades of preaching how every week the, the excitement, there was just such excitement of coming to a new text, a new fresh text to dig into and study and see the riches that God has for us there. And it just seems in Romans that every time I come to a new text each week, some commentator says, this is the hardest passage in all of Paul or all of the New Testament. Well, this one actually uh, gets, uh, gets that ascription uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, this passage is uh, quite difficult, and we have to untangle it. Uh, the word that many commentators use about these verses is condensed. Paul's grammar, his verbiage, his language are, is very condensed. His logic just squeezed together in a tight space so that you have to really untangle it to understand what he's saying here. But by God's grace, by his Holy Spirit, we hope to do some untangling this morning and more to come. So let's pray and ask for God's help in that endeavor. Lord God, we love you. We worship you this morning. We thank you for this very special time to come and gather as God's people in this local church and bring you praise. We pray for other local churches as they gather. We ask that Christ would be exalted, that your word would be preached, and Lord, that we would be changed. We ask that your spirit would do the work of mortifying sin in us this morning and vivifying, bringing to life our spirits as the Holy Spirit within us grows us as we live according to the Spirit, as we walk according to the Spirit. God, we thank you for these three verses that we're going to look at this morning and what they teach us. We pray that our minds would be ready to receive these things, that our ears would be attentive, that our thoughts would be focused. And Lord, that now your Holy Spirit would protect us from the evil one and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Help us now to understand your word, both in the preaching of it and in the hearing of it. God, we thank you that uh, we have each other. We thank you that we are not alone in this world, that we have our brothers and sisters in Christ, reminding us every time we look at one of our fellow believers, reminding us that we have a Father in heaven, and reminding us that we have an older brother 
as Hebrews refers to him as our brother who has gone before us, who has passed through the heavens and with whom we will reign one day forever. God, we thank you for the hope that we are so reminded of during Christmas. We pray that uh, the deep, rich theological truths of Christmas would stay with us throughout the year. Uh, This is uh, uh, what it means to celebrate Christmas and and Easter and just to celebrate Christ all year, God. We pray that that would be the case for us as we move towards a new year. And we pray for our church as we move towards a new year, Father, that you would uh, direct us, that you would show us ways in which which we need to grow and and be strengthened, ways that we are weak uh, spiritually and collectively, Uh, Lord, that you would help us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at the first, these first three verses, as Paul introduces Adam to us, I want to draw your attention to three things. And you'll see these up here on the slide. Three things that we should Take away from this text. There's a lot here, even in these three verses. But there are three big things that we just cannot miss, that you have to walk away from, and that you have to walk away with. (laughs) So here they are. First, the typology. Second, the history. And third, the headship. So let's go first to the typology. The typology. And kids, you could just write that down, and hopefully you'll come to see what in the world I'm talking about. And if not, you can ask your mom and dad on the way home. And if they don't know, they can just give me a call. (laughs) I want to work my way down into this passage. I want to kind of work down into it. Sometimes it's, uh, sometimes passages are, are very easy to just go through verse by verse or phrase by phrase as you work your way through it. But I want to approach this passage a little differently, and I want to kind of work my way down into the details of it from the outside, and I want to look at it from a few angles, and the first angle is to ask about the purpose of these verses. So big picture, just sort of stepping back and looking at them, at them as a whole. What is the purpose of these three verses? What is Paul doing with Adam? What role does Adam play? play? What function does he serve in Paul's overall argument? And the big answer here comes at the end of verse 14. So I think we kind of need to start at the end of the passage in order to understand it. So look there at the end of verse 14. Adam is a type of the one who is to come. You got to get that first. That's the big idea. That's what's going on here. So get that above all else. Adam is a type of Christ. This means that Adam prefigured Christ. That's all I mean by typology. Typology basically is the study of how in the Old Testament we have this prefiguring of Christ. And, and, and we see it all over Christmas. Christ, uh, the, the temple is, is, uh, is like a type of Christ. Christ is the true temple. The sacrificial system as a whole and the lamb of Passover and the lamb, the the lamb sacrificed throughout all of the sacrificial animals. We even see the ram provided there in Genesis 22. 
We see all of the different figures in the Old Testament are types of Christ. Of course, David is one of the the quintessential examples. Jesus in the New Testament, as he moves around and as he's healing people, people call him the son of David. He is literally a descendant of David, but David is a type of Christ. David is the little C, Christ, the little C, anointed one, the little K, king. Christ is the true Christ, the true king. So all of these things are meant to prefigure Christ. And what Paul tells us here is that Adam is a figure of the future Christ, the one who would come later. He is an analogy of Christ. And with regard to what Paul is talking about with sin, death, righteousness, and life, he is the analogy to Christ. Now let me just pause here for a moment and make an observation. This reminds us that the events of the fall were not outside of God's sovereign purposes. I want you to see that. That even going into the fall, God has a sovereign purpose for what happens in the fall. Now, this is amazing to us because it it boggles our minds. We don't understand this. God's sovereignty is a difficult topic because we have very finite, limited minds. But what we need to see here is Paul is not saying, look, in retrospect, it seems like I could draw a bit of a line between Adam and Christ. Considering Christ, let me use Adam as an illustration. No, 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 no. Illustration was chapter 4 with Abraham. What we're being told here is that according to God's sovereign plan over history, he sovereignly oversaw the events of the fall in such a way as to set up and establish Adam as a type of the future Christ. Do you see that? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And there's a point at which I think theologians just sort of dip over into speculation here. There's a point at which we just have to accept mystery between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We saw this in Genesis, right? Do you remember Joseph's brothers, what they did to Joseph? How they took him and stripped him of his robe. They threw him in the pit. They were going to kill him, but then they sold him into slavery. What does Joseph later say about that? He says, what you meant for evil, what you purposed for evil, it doesn't say God took it and used it for good. That's not what Joseph says. What Joseph says is, what you purposed or meant for evil, God meant for good. Who was behind the scenes working sovereignly as Joseph's brothers wickedly did that to their brother? The Lord God, the sovereign creator who said, let there be light, the king of his universe. So just a note here, we see God's plan unfolding throughout history. That what happened with Adam and the way it happened was all part of God's sovereign plan. And we see this typology play out from the very beginning. As Paul launches into his comparison of Adam with Christ, look at verse 12, the very beginning. 
Two words. Just as. Just as. Dot, dot, dot. He goes on. Although Paul doesn't actually complete the sentence structure. He kind of gets carried away uh, with himself. He doesn't, there's no completion to this sentence. Uh, Just as Adam, he doesn't come around and finish that sentence technically speaking, but it is clear that he completes the thought in verses 15 to 19. So my point is that not only does the the language of Adam being a type at the end of verse 14, but also the very first words reminds us that Adam and Christ are being compared. Just as with Adam, so here with Christ. That's the point I'm getting at. And Paul will complete this in verses 15 to 19. As I said, in verses 15 to 17, so we're going ahead a little bit, which is why I read all of that. You can look ahead here. In verses 15 to 17, we see the contrast, how the work of Adam is not like the work of Christ. And then in verses 18 to 19, we get the comparison. As one trespass, so one act of righteousness, as by the one man's disobedience, so by the one man's obedience. Do you see that? Adam as a type through this comparison and contrast that Paul will bring throughout the end of chapter 5. Before we move on to our second point, I want to reiterate one major implication here. Just one thing that I think is even more fitting given that Christmas was so recent. The Old Testament is full, as I said before, of this prefiguring of Christ. And I want you to see the Old Testament this way. The Old Testament is like a train barreling towards Christ. All throughout from the very beginning. Moving with energy and speed and intensity towards this Christ. So if you're anything like me, I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus so many times because, you know, you start out January 1st, you got your read through the Bible plan. You ready to go? You've got your, maybe your read through the Bible Bible where it breaks it up for you, you know, and so you always start with Genesis and the excitement. Genesis is is, is pretty uh, intriguing. It keeps us going, but by the time we get somewhere, you know, deeper into those first five books, we start to taper off. It's, I'm sure everyone in here has experienced that, but here is my prayer for us as we move into the new year, whether you're going to be starting a new Bible reading plan or not, whether you would even be starting with Genesis or when you get done with the New Testament, you start with the Old Testament. Here is my prayer for us that as we read the Old Testament, that we would indeed read it with great delight as we savor Christ. Because it is a train moving towards Christ from the very beginning. And it is amazing how in the very first chapter of Genesis, we get two references. Now they're veiled references, but two references to Christ. Let us make man at the end of the chapter. Let us make man in our image. And then we also at the very beginning get all of this, let there be light. God makes all things by his word. John picks up on that at the beginning of the gospel of John. And he's, he's identifying 
Christ, he's identifying the second person of the Trinity who became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He's identifying that person with the word through whom God made the world in Genesis 1. So from the very beginning, just read the first few verses. Christ, he's all over the place. Read it and savor Christ in it. So that's our first point, the typology. Now we move to the second point, the history. Now we need to move from the skeletal structure down into the details a little more. What does Paul say about Adam as he introduces him? What's the backstory that lends itself to comparison? What's the history here? Although his name does not appear until verse 14, it is abundantly clear who Paul is talking about from the very beginning. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I'll stop there. Just as Paul's mention of Abraham centered on Genesis 15, here his mention of Adam centers on Genesis chapter 3, which Stan read to us earlier. So what happened? We read it. We listened. Hopefully. What happened? The short answer, as Paul describes it here. By the way, this is also like a rabbinical exposition of Genesis 3. So understand that Paul is trained as a rabbi, and now he's a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbi, as it were, and as a Jewish exegete, an interpreter of Scripture. He's going back, as he did in Romans 4. He went back there to Genesis 15, 6. In all of its context, he's saying, this is what that text is about. And here, he's going to Genesis 3, and he's helping us understand what Genesis 3 is about. He's commenting on that chapter. So what happened? Sin and death entered the world through Adam. That's the short answer. Sin and death entered the world through Adam. God made Adam. Now listen to this. This is important. God made Adam to live under his authority. Adam was to live under the lordship of God. Under his lordship, Adam was given dominion over all things, but he was to exercise this dominion under God's dominion. Adam was to remain under God. So God gave him one single command. And think about it this way. One means by which he would express his submission to the Lord as his God. Because it is in obeying this one command. You may think, you know, some of that sounds, it just sounds so silly. It's just one command. It's just a tree. It's, it's a fruit. You know, come on. I mean, really? Was that all so bad? Well, you're misunderstanding what that entire command is about. It is about God filling Adam with goodness and giving him one thing by which he can say with his actions, the Lord is my God. God is God. Adam is not God. The creation is not God. 
God is God, and God said, and I will listen. That's what's going on. Genesis 2, 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God puts before Adam the consequence. Adam's life was surrounded, as I said a moment ago, by God's goodness. I mean, we think our lives are surrounded by God's goodness. And they are. We are in a fallen world, a broken world. Imagine the experience of God's goodness in the pre-fall world. Imagine Adam's experience of life. He is surrounded by God's goodness. The entire world, the entire universe was formed for Adam's enjoyment. You see that in the progression of Genesis 1. Everything is made to prepare a home for man and woman. To prepare a place for them to live, to work, and to worship. Adam was given work, endless food, and a helper and companion. He was given a wife. Not only was he and his wife, not only was their life filled with perfect bliss, but he had set before him, we don't give a lot of thought to this, but Adam had set before him the prospect of a world filled with innumerable offspring who would enjoy God's creation along with him. I mean, those of us in this world, we have children, and we, we know that at some point we're going to have to leave this world. And we, we pray that we will leave the world before our children do. But we, we at some point are going to have to leave this world, leave our children and our children's children, because we're all going to die. But Adam was going to see many, many, many generations indefinitely. What a prospect. Reminds us what God is really saying to Abraham as he makes the promises of offspring. It's really a recapitulation of what Adam had, if you think about it. And all of this goodness that God has showered upon Adam is why God's one command is introduced with this reminder. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's kind of like in the Ten Commandments. God says, remember, I took you out of slavery. I showed you my glory. I showed you my power. I delivered you. I rescued you. Now worship me as your God. Right? I mean, hello? I'm the one who has established myself as your God. I've demonstrated that I can do it. I can be your God. So here I am as your God. Here's my goodness to you. Now go and obey me and submit to me and worship me as your God. That's exactly what's happening here. God says, I've given you everything, Adam. Now just do this or don't do this. But one day, the tempter came, taking the form of one of the creatures Adam had named, a serpent. This tempter was a fallen angel, a demonic being. 
reminding us that sin came before Adam, just not into the world. A demonic being, the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, the father of sin and evil, Satan, the devil. By the way, he's real. He's real. Oh, he loves when you think he's not. He loves to. You, you think that, uh, you think Satan delights in the, the Satan worshipers. No. He delights in those who don't believe he exists. Because then he could just wreak havoc. Loves to hide that his devious purposes might play out in our lives. Satan is real. He is working and he was working from the beginning. He tempted Eve to disobey God's command. She questioned God's word and goodness because Satan tempted her to question both of those things. Can God be trusted and is he good? Isn't that the way he works in our lives? Can he be trusted? Can you really trust God? Look what you're going through. Is he really with you? Does he really care about you? Can you really trust his word? I mean, are you sure? You sure he said that? She was lured by beauty, pleasure, wisdom, and glory. All of which she had in truth. But she was lured to have them apart from God. To have them in her own way. To have them for her own glory. And to have them in her own self-reliance. And her own independence from her maker. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Hold on a second. What was that last sentence? Can you read that again? And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice how quickly, how quickly the text just breezes over what Adam did. In chapter 2 verse 17, remember it was the command. The command was given to Adam specifically. It was not given to both of them. At least that's not the way the text reads. It was given to Adam. Despite the fact that God had given him Eve, that God had showered him with goodness, despite the fact that God had directly given him the command not to eat, despite all of that, he quickly takes and eats. There's not even a fuss here. Eve, I don't think I should do that. I mean, let's talk about this. You remember what God said? None of that. There's none of that. It's just he took it and he ate it. Okay, wife. Sounds good to me. A lot that can be said there, and you can go back and listen to uh, our time going through Genesis 3. But I want to move on and really try to understand what Paul is getting at here. As Paul describes it in verse 18, this is, this act that is just mentioned so quickly, this act, or so briefly, is the one trespass that led to condemnation for all men. This was the one man's disobedience. This was no small thing. It was massive in scope. 
So much so that it can be compared to the work of Christ in saving. Massive in scope. Not just a little mistake. Paul's point here is that this one act brought the entire human race to ruin. Sin that led to death, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, as one commentator describes it. Uh, It opened up the door. It brought in sin, and that opened up the door to death. Sin brought death, just as God told Adam or warned Adam that it would. This is spiritual death, separation from God. We see that in Adam's hiding, right? His heart is separated from God. You see that immediately. He's running from God. He's going into the trees of the garden to shield himself from the terror of this God. No longer father, but terror. He is estranged from God immediately, separated from him in his hiding. And then he is quite literally cast out of the garden by God, separated from him. We see physical death, separation from the tree of life. The body will return to the dust, meaning the body is separated from the soul. And we have here also eternal death. As Paul shows us as he goes on into the rest of chapter 5, this is condemnation, eternal separation from God in hell. That's what that act brought. All through one man, through one act. And before we move on, to our final point. I want to highlight something very important here. For Paul, don't miss this. For Paul, Adam is a real historical figure. It's unmistakable. It is amazing what commentators, academic commentators will will sometimes try to just pull out of their hat to try to twist the scriptures. We've seen this with the way homosexuality is treated in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1. It's amazing how you can read those passages and they can be twisted to one's own worldview. But here it's very clear, unequivocally clear, Adam is a real historical figure. He's not a metaphor for every man. He's not a myth, but a real man, a real flesh and blood man who committed real sin and who lived during a real point in the history of the earth. Listen to the way one commentator, Douglas Moo, comments on, well, he responds here to the argument that Adam is not historical. This is what he says. The effects of Adam's act in history, universal sinfulness and death, would seem to demand an Adam who sinned in history. I might, for instance, and here he's going to draw a comparison, so listen closely to what he's saying here. I might, for instance, compare and contrast Aslan from Chronicles of Narnia with Christ to make a general theological point, as Aslan died for Edmund on the stone table, Christ dies for us on the cross. But my listeners would be quite confused if I claimed that the white witch introduced into our world 
our world, a condition that Christ has saved us from. And the confusion would be quite natural. I would be positing events in our history caused by, respectively, a fictional character and a real character. So if, here's what he's saying. Let me just paraphrase. If if Christ is indeed a real historical character, as is abundantly clear here in Paul, Adam must likewise be a real historical character. He goes on. Adam, as Paul makes clear, functions on the same historical plane as Moses, the law, and Christ, of whom he is the type. So just as Moses really lived, just as the law was really there, just as Christ really came, so too did Adam, the first person on the world, in the world, so too was Adam a historical figure. Listen to Paul's reference to Adam in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And we know that the Lord Jesus saw Adam also as a historical figure because of the way he spoke about marriage. He roots marriage in the very literal historical binding of Adam and Eve when God in Genesis 2 brought Eve to Adam. Adam is not a metaphor or a myth. He's a real man, and we all come from him. So now we move to our final point this morning, and that is the headship. So we've seen the typology, the main takeaway from the text. We've gone back into the history, which you have to understand to see what's going on here. And now finally, we get to the the, the point that Paul is making specifically with these verses, and that is the headship. This is one that you may find a bit challenging, both intellectually and ethically, but it is here nonetheless. There are many ways to come at the topic of human sinfulness and death, condemnation, and there are many facets to it and aspects of it, and we see this throughout the Bible. We've already seen that all human beings commit their own actual sins. We've seen that. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, makes absolutely clear that we all are sinners. So Paul goes to the Gentiles, and he gets down in the dirt, in the nitty-gritty. And he explained, these are, some, these are the sins that we're seeing here. I mean, list, list, long list of sins. And even kind of stacks them up next to each other to show the progression of sin, the logical relationship of sin there at the end of chapter 1. It's a fascinating passage, one of the main passages in the Bible for a doctrine of sin. But then in chapter 2, he continues and he starts to look at the religious man, particularly the Jew. And the pride, and the sense of privilege, and the presumption, and the hypocrisy. Oh man, filled with all this Deep surgical work on sin. And then we get to chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, where he just pounds it home. None is righteous, no, not one. And he looks at the tongue, and he looks at our feet, and looks at the things we actually do. It's so clear as you go through that passage, chapter 118 to 320, that sin is actual and real and individual and lived out, and each of us does it. And so we get, climactically, chapter 3, verse 23. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it is abundantly clear by the time you get to Romans 5.12 that all human beings commit their own sin and are therefore deserving of death and condemnation. So that's clear already. Sin has been a part of the world since Adam, which is clear from verses 13 to 14. Look here in our passage, verses 13 to 14. Some have called this a parenthesis. It's, it's an aside from what he's saying in verse 12. But for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned. Look at that language. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam broke a specific command. Those after Moses break specific commands. But those between Adam and Moses were sinners too. And they Died too. Genesis chapters 4 through 11 illustrate human sinfulness. I mean, immediately after the fall, what do we get? Cain and Abel. And then after we move from the story of Cain, we move very quickly into this genealogy in chapter 5 of, and he died, and he died, and he died. And this is the good line, so to speak. Everybody's dying in Genesis chapter 5. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6 with the flood. The whole world evil. One man found favor in the eyes of God. One man, by God's grace, pleased the Lord. There we are with Noah. But then after he gets off the ark, look at what Noah does. And then look at what Ham does. And then look at what Noah's descendants do in building the Tower of Babel. It's clear. Death reigned, sin reigned from Adam to Moses. So we know that there are actual sins for each of us and they deserve death. But the individual actual sins of all human beings, listen to this, this is important. This is, this is where I've been getting. The individual actual sins of all human beings is not the focus of Romans 5. That's not Paul's focus here. Instead, What we have here is what theologians for centuries have called original sin. Now, original sin is a big big, uh, concept. There's lots that could be said about that. I I just want to stick here to what Paul is getting at. There are ways, different ways of understanding original sin. But the emphasis throughout this passage is on the sin of the one man. So follow the logic here. The emphasis in this passage is on the sin of the one man and the death and condemnation that this one act brought to humanity. The emphasis is on Adam and his act. Let me make that clear. It's on Adam and his act in the garden. Look especially at verses 18 to 19. Let me read those to you. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So do you see that? I want you to get that clear in your mind. One man, one act. Compared with one man, Christ, and one act. The emphasis here is on what that one man did and what Christ did. 
So now let's go back to verse 12. I'm going to tie all this together so hopefully we'll understand what's going on. Go back to verse 12. What does Paul mean at the end of the verse when he says that all sinned? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What does he mean there when he says all sinned? I want to give you a quote from Thomas Schreiner, who I think offers a very clear explanation of this concept going on here with Adam. The words all sinned should not be understood to say that all sinned personally and individually. When when Paul says all sinned, here it is. Here's the original sin. When Paul says all sinned, he means that all sinned in Adam. Death spread to all people without exception because everyone sinned in Adam. Adam's sin was their sin. And Adam is their covenant or federal head. Now this is foreign. This is a little foreign to us. But if we go back in Scripture, we see something similar in the case of Achan in Joshua 7. The Israelites go and defeat Jericho, and he is, they are told not to take any of the devoted things, and he takes some of the devoted things. And as you read throughout chapter 7, God holds all of Israel, listen to this, God holds all of Israel responsible because of the act of the one man. So God holds the guilt of that one man as a representative of all the people. We also see that his family is destroyed along with him. It's the same idea here. It is the idea of corporate identity. Corporate identity. Now this is very foreign to those of us living in. You know, we have blind spots. We have blind spots living in 21st century American society. And one of those blind spots, the prevailing blind spot, is that we are so individualistic. No matter how relational we are, how family-oriented we are, how community-oriented we are, we are still, at the core, individualistic people. Because we live in a society that is more individualistic than human beings have ever been in the history of the world. We are little islands, and if not ourselves, our families. I think it's one of the reasons that people have such a a hard time with the notion of church membership. It's just, just it it doesn't register. So foreign. We are individuals. But here, the focus is on corporate identity. Easier for other cultures to understand. They might read this and say, oh yeah, of course. Adam stands for the whole. He stands in the place of the whole. Just as Christ stands in place, that's the argument in Romans 5. That's what Paul's saying clearly. But there it is. But for us, it's like, hold on a second. Let me read that again. I, I don't know about this. So individualistic. It wasn't just a human who fell in the garden. 
Humanity fell in the garden. That's my point. It wasn't just a man. Adam's just not a guy who fell in the garden and we imitate him. Oh, you know, we got that sin nature in us. Of course we do. And that's taught elsewhere in Scripture. I'm not negating that. And yes, we commit our own sins and we get death because of our own sins. But we can't miss this facet of the doctrine of sin. And that is when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. There's a corporate identity here. We are all under the curse. We are all under judgment. We are all under the guilt of our sin as humans. Humanity sinned in the garden. Adam means man, human. Adam is our representative head. But here's the beauty of Romans 5, and this is where we'll close this morning. This is not where Paul leaves us. This is not even Paul's main point. Paul is driving to Christ. He's, not, he's already done the whole sin and death and condemnation thing. That's chapter 118 to 320. Now he's just delighting and bubbling up in the glories of the gospel and the Christian life and the security and assurance that we have in Jesus. That's what he's doing right here. And he wants to say, look, yes, Adam is our representative head. But just as our union with him means sin and death, listen to this, our union with Christ, our new representative head, means righteousness and life. He died for all. He was raised for all. He reigns for all. We died with him. We were raised with him, and we, praise God, will reign with him forever as our head. We are his body. Praise God that in Christ Jesus we have life. All that defined us in Adam has been overcome in Christ. Let's pray.